So I don't know if you know this, but I grew up around airplanes. So if you didn't know, my father still to this day, he has a company where, where he, he works on airplanes and specifically on the interiors of airplanes. So growing up, I thought that I was going to be a pilot because I spent most of my time, whenever, anytime I visited my father, I would go and, and get to go to the airport and look at all the airplanes and hop in the, into the cockpit of the pilot seats. And my, I'm sure my father was praying I didn't break anything, but I would get to visualize myself flying a plane, and it's such a, a fond memory of mine to be able to think back to those times of, of, of being on an airplane and, and, and doing that. But still, what blows my mind is, at least when I was growing up, it, not even a hundred years before, we didn't even have that. I mean, think about how wild it is that we now think of flights and, and going on a plane as an ordinary form of transportation. But it wasn't until 1903 that the Wright brothers flew the Wright Flyer into the air and really impressed the world. Not even 66 years later the U.S. would be putting a person on the moon. And on that flight to the moon, there would be a piece of wood from that airplane left, uh, that airplane's left propeller that they took with them as a symbolic representation of how far man had come in such a short period of time that just 66 years before they had their first flight and then now they were putting somebody on the moon. Pretty radical, right? How fast things can change and how much can be accomplished in a short time period. Well, today we're going to be looking at a man's life, specifically a young man's life, and how God was able to accomplish great things in such a short period of time. So I pray that today's message, as we look at the life of David, would encourage you would remind you just how big our God is. So I ask now that you would turn to 1 Samuel 16 if you have your Bibles today. I will be putting most of the verses on the screen today. We do have more Scripture verses than normal this week, which I know that I probably say that a lot because, uh, you know, we preach from the Bible here, so we're going to look at Scripture uh, but, but this week in particular, we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture, so we're going to be accomplishing, hopefully, a lot today. But just a little bit of context over the book of Samuel and the life of David and where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 16. So if you didn't know this, what, what kind of came before this, this time period of David would have been called the time of the Judges. And there's even a book in the Bible called Judges where we learn about different men and women who serve as, as prophets and judge over Israel. And there's these different people who are, who are kind of acting as the leader over Israel and offering guidance to Israel as kind of a voice piece of God where they're able to bring judgments over certain things, where they're able to help lead the military and other things. And these judges are offering this direction for the people. 
It was a good time period. There was some bad things that happened like many time periods, but it, remar- it marked a great uh, season where God was, was, was truly reigning over as, as king of Israel. But what ended up happening was Israel started to look around at other nations and started to see that other nations had kings. And just like we do today, the grass appeared greener on the other side, right? And we tend to want what other people have. And when we look at ourselves and we don't see that, that we have what they have, then we get jealous. So that's exactly what Israel did. Am, am I coming in a little loud today? Okay. Um, sorry about that. If you could just lower me down a little bit, Nate. Can we give a round of applause for Nate? Nate's filling in today. And he literally learned how to do the stream, all these other things on the slides, and and he's doing a a great job. So thank you, Nate. Okay, is that better, guys? Okay, hopefully. All right. So going back to it, Israel started to look at other nations and wanted a king now for themselves. God warned them of this, though. Because ultimately, God was acting as king over Israel, and he warned them and said that when you receive a new king and elect a king over your land, things are going to change. That king is going to want something of you. But Israel rejected that advice and wanted a king anyway, so God established a king named Saul over Israel. And Saul had the right look. He was tall, dark, and handsome, and of the tribe of Benjamin. And he had everything going for him, but one major issue. While he had the appearance of a king on the outside, he did not have the heart of someone who loved and followed the Lord. And eventually, this would cause a change, and God would reject Saul as king and take the time to anoint a new king who would do a better job in leading the people of Israel. So I want to pick up at this this point of anointing of a new king. So 1 Samuel 16, 6 says that Samuel arrived and saw Eliab. So he goes to this this home where, where God calls him to go to this family of the house of Jesse, and he meets this, this, this oldest son of Jesse named Eliab, and he thought to himself, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Much like Saul, who had this outward appearance of what a king should look like, when Samuel saw Eliab, he obviously sees this this young man and thinks to himself, this guy also has the right look. Surely this person has the right appearance, posture, and presence to be king. God got it right, and he sent me to the right family because, man, this is, this is so obvious to me right now. But listen to what Scripture says next in verse 7. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Now, pay close attention to what is spoken next, because here is really the crux of today's message, and really almost the whole entire series that could be really summed up in what happens next and what is spoken next. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But say this rest part with me, okay? But the Lord looks at the heart. Say that one more time. The Lord looks at the heart. Church, if you've not caught up with us, if you've forgotten everything that I've preached about every single week, you know, oftentimes they say, I don't remember last week's sermon, but like food, you know, I might not remember what I ate yesterday, but I knew I needed to eat it. But if you've forgotten everything, don't forget this, that the Lord does not look at the outward appearance of an individual. He looks at the heart. That should bring some hope. For some, that actually might bring some terror, because if you feel like like in your heart you have these wicked feelings or ideas or, or what have you, you might get more afraid of this. But, but in reality, this should comfort us, because it means that God knows us for who we are. I mean, I'm not just talking about who we try to make ourselves seem like, who we try to, 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 how we try to present ourselves to the world, whether it's on social media or, or when we're in a job interview and we're dressed up to the, to the nines, you know. What I'm talking about is that the Lord truly knows you. He knows what's inside of you. He knows your pains. He knows your struggles. He knows your passions. He knows your thoughts. And ultimately, that should encourage us because it means that God can never look at us and be fooled. He sees us. He sees you. And He knows your heart. The Lord does not examine just the outward appearance of a person. He sees that person from the inside and out. So what happens next? What happens next is that God says that Eliab is not the one that I've anointed. So one by one, Jesse ends up bringing son after son after son to Samuel And each one gets rejected after the next, after the next, after the next, to where finally there are no sons left. And Samuel's very confused in this situation, and he doesn't really know what's going to happen because he's thought that he's seen every single one of Jesse's son until finally uh, Jesse says, well, I do have another son, but he's out in the field taking care of the sheep. So Samuel tells him to call that son forward, and when he sees that son, the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, it's him. It's this young man, this young boy at this time. So Samuel anoints David as the king 
over Israel. Now, there's a couple of theories on why David came last. You know, obviously, David had many brothers. But for whatever reason, David's dad did not include him in this this wonderful opportunity to see who's going to be the next king. If you ever come from a big family, or maybe not even a big family, and feel like your, your father or your mother has, has overlooked you, I can't imagine maybe what David would have feel, felt like in this situation, that all of his brothers were brought to this great, awesome opportunity to see who's going to be the next king, and David was just left out of the field to do work. So, in my opinion, there's probably two likely theories on why David was in some ways looked over by his father. And one was that maybe he was just so young that they didn't expect that God would have this for him. And the other is maybe his dad just didn't think he was special enough to do it. If you didn't know, even though in today's culture we, we kind of have these fond ideas of, of talking about shepherds, right? Because we sing these songs about how, how God is a shepherd. We read Bible passages that say the Lord is my shepherd. And we usually see, you know, a, a nice clean man with a cane and some cute little sheep that they're taking care of. But in reality, in this culture, being a shepherd was a poor person's job. It was kind of the poor among the poor were the shepherds. It was a dirty job and oftentimes a hard job to, in order to manage all of that. So could have it been that David's father just didn't think that much of him? Maybe. But either way, it didn't matter what David's father thought of him. It mattered what God thought of him. In a similar way, it doesn't matter necessarily what other people think about you. It ultimately matters what God thinks about you. Church, do you know what God thinks about you? Do you know how God views you? Or have you been listening to how other people view you? Has that been the way that you have shaped your own narrative in life? Others, other people's opinions of you. I'm preaching to myself here. I've oftentimes said that I'm a recovering people pleaser. <laughs> and what that's meant for me throughout the years is, is I want people to like me. Now, that's a normal, that's a normal feeling for most people, that, that wanting to be liked. But I've oftentimes gone in, 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 into the extreme of that where I'll I'll compromise something in my own life in order to seek that sense of approval. And even though I know that the only opinion that ultimately matters is God's opinion over my life, that's still a normal struggle. Is that your struggle? Do you truly, when you look at your life, do you care more about what your boss thinks? about what your random neighbor thinks, or whomever it might be. Look, I'm not saying that these opinions don't matter. 
They do to some extent. You want your boss to think you're doing a good job, right? (laughs) But ultimately, God's opinion of you, there is no higher opinion. What's interesting about this story, though, is that Samuel goes and he anoints David as king and says that this will be the king of Israel. But and then time goes on and nothing changes in David's life. He's still left to, to, to care for, for his sheep in his father's household. There's no ceremony for him that he's going to be the next king of Israel. He's not brought into the palace in, in order to, to, to live a kingly life. If anything, other than Samuel coming and doing this procedure with David, nothing really changes. Has God ever spoken a word in your life and then your situation just seems to stay the same? David would understand this struggle. Eventually what ends up happening is is that Saul ends up continuing to fight other kingdoms that are at war with his kingdom, and the Philistines in particular begin occupying some of Israel's land and, and attempting to go to battle with Israel. We're going to pick up now in chapter 17, verse 3. It says, The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. So this was a big guy, a huge guy. Now, it says that Goliath, verse 8, it says that Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? If you didn't notice, right here he's already getting it wrong. They're not servants of Saul. If anything, they're servants of the Lord, or they're they're the Lord's people. But what Goliath is specifically doing is he's undermining the people. He's undermining their king, and he's undermining God in this situation. And he goes and he continues and says, Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. So this sometimes happened where battles would be fought between two champions in order to to, to decide the fate of two kingdoms. But what Goliath was doing in this moment is he was causing the people to become afraid and live in fear over this situation because his size and stature would have been so big and his armor so impressive that the people would have been quivering looking at Goliath, shivering in in, in total fear. Scripture ends up telling us that that 
Jesse sends David over to, to, to be able to bring some bread and some cheese over as a delivery to his brothers. And, and while David is there, it says that he left his flock and loaded up to set out and, as Jesse had directed. And he's hearing this commotion that's going on. And he's hearing Goliath and the Philistine champion from Gath step out and taunt them and defy the Lord. And Scripture literally says that, that David heard it. And he heard Goliath's defiance against Israel. Now, most people, when they're hearing this defiance, they don't know what to do. They're envisioning that, that they are soon going to be servants over the Philistine. That no matter who they send forward, nobody is as big and as strong and as impressive as Goliath is. So in this moment, the whole entire nation is, is caught up in fear, and yet David, a young man, comes and he sees this, and he has a different reaction. And we'll get to that into a moment, but, but what I want to talk about here is, is that I believe that David is looking at this situation with different set of eyes. You see, the whole entire nation is doing what? Doing the same thing that Samuel was doing before when they were looking to anoint a king. And what was that? They were looking at the outward appearance. They were looking at what they saw on the outside. But what do we know from God now? Does God just look at the outside? No, he looks at the heart of the situation. And David is looking at it through the eyes of God, which is my first point for today, and this is an important one, that we need to look at life with God's eyes. We need to look at life with God's eyes. Remember that God looked at David, and he saw what his family could not see in him. The reason why today's scripture verse came out of the book of Ephesians is because in it lies so much truth that we oftentimes look over, and I'm going to read that again for you. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in this heavenly place. So according to this passage of Scripture, there's a real battle going on, right? And this battle doesn't have to do with just what we see with our earthly eyes, what we see in what some people would call the natural, but what we see in the supernatural, there is a war going on between the kingdom of darkness and God's kingdom. I like this quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones. It comes from, from the, the book, The Screwtape Letters, if you've ever read, read it before. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, talking about us as people, can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence, 
The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So C.S. Lewis is, is kind of a poetic man. What is he trying to say there? He's basically saying that there's, there's typically two pathways that people go down when it has to do with this kingdom of darkness, with this battle that, that, that Scripture says is raging. And one is to overemphasize it. And what do I mean by that? That means that there is a devil behind every single thing. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before, where, where people will, will cast out a demon out of a car that has a dead battery. Uh, it will, will cast out a demon out of every single thing that, that just doesn't go their way. And that might be considered an overemphasis, where every single thing has to somehow do with the devil attacking you. When in reality, it could have just been that you left your car lights on overnight. <laughs> but an equal and opposite error, and this is where many of us as Westerners, as Americans live, is an underemphasis of the kingdom of darkness. You know, even me, as, as, as someone who's a pastor who believes in Jesus, who believes in a real resurrection, I even in this current culture sometimes struggle with talking about these details. Not because I don't believe it, but because I realize that to many who, who are now becoming more and more atheistic, who are even doing away with God it, uh, himself, sometimes this seems like something out of Lord of the Rings. And I can underemphasize Satan in this kingdom of darkness. And I think this is the temptation where many of us lie as Westerners, as Western Christians, where we totally ignore and forget the fact that there is a kingdom of darkness at work. You know, one of the, the, the good things about reading this verse of Ephesians 6.12 is it hopefully helps you realize that some of the struggles that we go through in life have nothing to do with just a person-to-person -person conflict. Sometimes what it means is, is that the enemy is at work and the enemy is trying to bring you down. You know, I oftentimes warn people before baptizing them, don't, don't be surprised if somehow within the next month or I don't know when, something happens to you. Not because God's just mean and bullying you and allowing you to go through troubles, but rather sometimes when we strongly proclaim whose we are, I think the kingdom of darkness doesn't like that. And we'll fight back and try to resist that. You know, a story that I have is uh, uh, when I was uh, uh, a, a, a resident pastor in a church in Georgia in 2009, 
2010, around that, that, that area of uh, time, so about 11 years ago or so, um, I was a resident pastor in a place in Georgia, and it was kind of an internship program of sorts. Um, I remember this, this one week, I was just feeling down, and, and for whatever reason, I, I couldn't point a finger on why I was feeling down, but I was just constantly feeling this sense of, of gloom and dread in my life, and, and I was just dating Michaela at that time, and I told Michaela about it, and I just said, you know, if you, if you could just pray for me, but honestly, I kind of used that term like many of us do, as kind of just a, a cliche way of saying, like, oh, just pray for me. So later on in that day, I went to Chick-fil-A with a group of friends, and um, all of a sudden it was like a flip switched. And all of that gloom and all of that dread and just that depressed feeling that I was experiencing, it just seemed like it was just sucked out of the room. And I just started to laugh more. I started to feel happier. I just, it was like it was totally gone and it was a total shift in how I was feeling. And I just had this overwhelming sense in me that somebody was praying for me, that somebody was lifting me up to the Lord. So I literally broke away from my conversation and my food that I was having at the restaurant. I went outside, took out my cell phone, dialed Michaela's number, she picked up, and I said, are you praying for me? And she was like kind of confused. She didn't, she didn't understand my excitement and thought I, I seemed upset or something. And she was like, yeah, I was actually just praying for you right now. And I was like, I knew it! <laughs> I knew somebody was praying for me! And I believe in that moment... God was working on the prayers of his people, and, and the Lord was, was, was through Michaela's prayers, was, was changing the atmosphere of my situation. And look, I'm not saying that every single time you're depressed that that's going to be the one-two solution, that the minute you pray, it's going to go away. You know, sometimes we go through issues that, that really we need to sort out through, through wise counsel or, or through going through a, a, a certain kind of process. But we can't forget, church, that there is this kingdom of darkness. And I believe this kingdom of darkness was fighting against Israel right now. And what the people in Israel were seeing is they were seeing this eight to nine foot tall person with this helmet of bronze and a coat of mail that probably weighed around 126 pounds. And they were looking at that and that's all that they could see. But they couldn't see that this was the kingdom of darkness fighting against the kingdom of light. They just saw the outside kingdom, but they didn't realize that their kingdom, that God's kingdom, was a much more powerful kingdom that couldn't be stopped. And a whole entire nation, including its king, was just focused on what they could see on the outside, but only David was focused on what he could see in the Spirit. Church, we need to see what God sees in the Spirit. Amen? So what ends up happening next? 
David starts asking around, and, and he starts wondering what, what will happen, you know, of this man that kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel. I love that, that he's like, you know, strong enough or proud enough to, to call this person a disgrace from Israel. And he even continues and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? I just get goosebumps when I hear that. (laughs) Do you see anybody talking about Goliath like this? No. But David's looking at Goliath through the eyes of God. So they end up telling him what's going to happen. And Eliab, remember him? The one who was the oldest brother of uh, of David? overhears this conversation with David. And look what it says in 1 Samuel 17, 28. It says this, When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, it says what? He was happy because he realized that David was the anointed king over Israel and that he was able to do something through the Lord's power and the Holy Spirit? No. <laughs> It says, he burned with anger. Interesting. What does this tell you? It tells you that you could be doing something 100% right. And yet, somebody else could look at you and just think the worst. That you could be doing exactly what God is calling you to do. And yet somebody can look at your life and get angry over it. Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? What is he doing? He's he's mocking him. He's mocking his job. He's mocking the fact that he came down there. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. Interesting. Here we see it again. This idea of the heart coming up. So in God's eyes, when God looked at David and Eliab, what did he say? He said, I look at the heart. And he rejected Eliab, but what did he do with David? He anointed David. But yet when when Eliab looks at David's life, he says that you're conceited and you have a wicked heart. And you only came down here basically to watch the battle basically for a spectacle, to be entertained. Wow. How wrong could even our own siblings get who we are? Eliab was so far off from who David actually was. But that's the problem, is that oftentimes we end up just evaluating our, our, our life, our own life, by what we see on the outside. And I'm not even just talking about our physical appearance. I'm talking about our circumstances. Sometimes we allow our circumstances because maybe we don't like where, where things are politically with our country or our bank accounts or our relationships or what have you. And we allow that to define what we believe God can or can't do in our own lives. David would have heard all of this, 
I know if it were me, it would probably hurt me to know that my own sibling thinks that of me. And it's a reminder that if your own brother or sister could judge you in that way, how much more will others? But even though he would have experienced all this negativity from his brother, I love how David responds to this situation. He eventually goes up to Saul and, 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 and word gets out that David is willing to fight Goliath and that he's willing to, to deal with this problem. And he tells the king over Israel, I can't even imagine what that would have felt like as a young man. And he says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. You know, Saul, hearing this, tries to, in some ways, dissuade David because, again, Saul's just looking at the outside. He's just seeing a young man who maybe is 14 years old, maybe a little older, probably no more than 17. And he's seeing a warrior of a man that stands taller than anybody else. And he tries to, to, to persuade him to do otherwise. But listen to how David responds again to his king. He says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I would seize it by its hair, struck it, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Wow. Do you think David is using those physical eyes that are looking only in the natural, or is he seeing something else? He's seeing something else. Because he realizes that by profession, he understands what it means to take care of his little ones. His little ones were his sheep, right? And he's basically explaining this here, that, that I know how to take care of my own sheep, that even though I'm young, even if a lion comes or a bear comes and snatches it away, I do what I need to do in order to protect what I've been entrusted with, to protect my flock. So if I do that for my flock, how much more will God do that for us right now? Amen? Church, I'm preaching something that should encourage you right now because what I'm trying to communicate to you right now is that God is the shepherd over our lives. That means that if something comes against you, if a lion or a bear of, your, of circumstances come against you in your life, what does that mean? It means that God, just like David, will stand up and fight for you. This is, in fact, what got Jesus in trouble so many times, is because he was always willing to go out in the unordinary circumstances and do extraordinary things for those that needed him. I mean, he even reminds people and, and tells them, why wouldn't I leave the 99 to save the one? You are that one. 
Two, have confidence in God. Have confidence in God. David would be given a whole bunch of armor to wear, and he felt like it was too heavy, so he literally strips it off. And he goes out into the battlefield, and there waiting for him is Goliath. I mean, it probably looked like a a total parody of sorts to see someone that was probably standing much, much, much taller next to someone small, someone who had over a hundred pounds of armor on, someone that wasn't even carrying a sword, let alone armor. And Goliath, looking at David, says that he despised him and told him, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David had some, uh, in Spanish we would have said cojones. <laughs> I won't say the English translation. <laughs> but he had a lot of confidence in his Lord. And I love how he responds to Goliath. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. Immediately, what is he doing? He's saying, you come against me with these physical objects, but I come against you through the power of God himself. And he says, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animal, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves For the battle is in the Lord's, and he will give you all into our hands. I don't know if I could do that. (laughs) I'd be like, hey, could we uh, maybe like talk this out? You know, I'll take you out to to coffee. It'll be my treat. Maybe we could work something out. (laughs) Not at all. Because David understood very clearly that the victory was already his. Because this person wasn't fighting against David. Who was this person truly fighting against? God and his people. And church, that should remind you that in your circumstances, when people are just judging you by your outward appearance, when people are just looking at the natural, when you feel obstacles and resistance coming your way, that the most important thing you can do is focus yourself on the Lord. Pray to God. 
Have Him fight your battles. Have Him be able to lead you and guide you and give you the confidence to know that if He is in your life, then He will direct your paths and He will help you become overcomers. Now, this isn't a blanket check to think that, that you can just do whatever you want. I'm not saying that. But what I am trying to say is that we need to depend on our God because our God is very dependable. Amen? And that we need to live for the kingdom of God. That's how David was living. David wasn't living for just an earthly kingdom. He was living for God's kingdom. I want to live for God's kingdom. That no matter what circumstance I find myself in, what country I'm a part of, I want to live for establishing, fighting, and dying for God's kingdom. Let's pray.